Hey, one more thing before you go. Have you ever asked yourself, how can we elevate our consciousness in our personal and professional life? What's the difference between mind, body, and feeling and mind, body, and soul? And how can we dance with the five rhythms? How can that help us in life? Stay tuned. We're going to have a conversation with an amazing woman who can answer all of these questions and more. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. My guest in this episode is Catherine Llewellyn. She's a thought leader, humanist, psychologist, which we're going to talk about, a writer, a podcaster with over 30 years experience of facilitating senior leaders and others to elevate their consciousness and create transformation in every area of their lives, including work. Her approach is highly alternative and highly effective. She's had a lifelong passion for human evolving and transformation beginning at age six, is encouraged by her wildly bohemian upbringing and variety of catalytic encounters with radical thought leaders. This path delivered extraordinary experiences, challenges, and learnings in her work and personal life, which we're going to have a conversation about that journey. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. It is an amazing journey, especially from the beginning, I've listened to some of uh, the other podcasts that you've been on and watched them, and uh, yeah, you have had an amazing journey of transformation with others, and it makes me really happy that you share that transformation with others so that they can also reach that level. So uh, first and foremost, thank you. Oh, thank you very much. I, I must say it wasn't um, quite as smooth as that might have sounded. Often it just <laughs> felt sort of tumbling through life, not really knowing quite what I was doing. Um, but if I have been helpful to people along the way, then that is um, a wonderful thing. That well, I think, you know, for. journey, uh, we're, all of our journeys are our experiences. And I think that each step that we take in this journey of life, that uh, it adds to uh, our experiences, which then we can share with others, because those that walk before us have kind of cleared the path. Those that walk beside us and behind us sometimes need the path cleared and uh, mm. uh you help to do that so yeah experiences work speaking of path and journey i start at the beginning i'd love to start at the beginning where'd you grow up oh um i grew up in oxfordshire which is rural southern england and um we lived in a a, a little cottage it was about 400 years old with low ceilings and lots of beams um and uh, you know leaks and rain coming in and you know it was no central heating, um, very very rural, very charming, atmospheric, in a tiny little village about six miles outside Henley on Thames, which is a well-known town in uh, in South England, small town. So I spent a lot of time in the woods, wandering around, walking, um, cycling uh, with with friends and. Um, just living a country life. Country life is great. Do you have any? You have any siblings? Do you have a? Uh, what was your family like? Yes. Well, um, two parents, <laughs> obviously, um, and three siblings. Um, one of my, I was the eldest. My next down sister, very sadly, died in a car accident when she was sixteen, and I was nineteen, and that was a horrible, horrible um, shock. For the whole family 
and um, also very sadly my mother died quite young so we we met with the reality of our own mortality if you like and and the reality that uh, people we love may not be here forever at least physically quite young so uh, you know so yeah there were six of us and then there were five of us and then there were four of us and then my father died in his 60s and now there are three of us but you're still here and you're still moving forward so that's a positive thing absolutely you know one of the reasons i started one more thing before you go is because life can change in an instant and um sometimes we as humans don't always uh remember that life can change in an instant and you know my my message to everyone that i've ever spoken with both personal life and professional life because i'm being a police officer you know is life can change that fast and that you should always remember to say what you want to say and and you know try to do the things that you would like to do with the loved ones that are around you because you know sometimes they walk out the door and they don't come home and uh yeah. you know it creates an impact in our lives that that last for a very very long time i i understand where you came from i lost my father when i was you know 15 years old so um mm. i do understand from that perspective as well it's difficult growing up uh at that age without a father you know i ended up with a step a brilliant amazing stepfather but that wasn't until i was about 18 years old um yeah but yeah it's you know each journey takes us where we need to go i think um that's right what do you want to be when you grow up well i didn't particularly want to be anything in particular i mean i was i was i was very interested you mentioned me at the age of six i was very interested even then in um this whole mystery of being a human being i i would look around at the adults that my parents hung out with and i would i would notice that they often weren't telling the truth to each other or to themselves they were small talk i suppose is what you'd call it now. Uh, and they were spent a lot of time talking about things they didn't really care about and saying things they didn't really mean and not very happy. So I remember thinking, I really want to understand that. And I'm really, I don't feel that that's right, that that's how people are living. Surely they can't be happy. And I remember being fascinated by that and um, wanting to understand it. And another element at that time, my father was a a naturopath, an osteopath, which was a career switch, actually, which he embarked on shortly after I was born, I think. Mm. And he that was, a, that was a highly alternative line of work in those days. And, uh, mm. The non-bank, very, very fringe, and a lot of people found it very suspect. But I remember being very impressed by what he was doing, healing people. And I, I remember thinking, I'd like to do something that helps people I remember thinking that. So I had those two things going on about wanting to understand, you know, why people spend so much time and energy kind of avoiding what they're really feeling, it seemed. And also this whole question of, could I be someone that helps people? And that's about as clear as it was when I was a child. That's brilliant to get it at that age, actually, to have that perception and that ability to be able to recognize that and then to want to take it to a step further. I, I like the mm. fact that your father got into the holistic naturopathic way um, early, early on. I mean, I, yeah. 
I, I was introduced to it 20, let me see, now I have to add <laughs> 25 years, 30, almost 30 years ago now. Wow. When you stop and think about it, sometimes time flies, doesn't it? You're right, yeah. So I was introduced, introduced to it then, and people would look at me weird. You know, yeah. I, I got into acupuncture, and I got into... Now, part of it was because I was practicing, like, martial arts and things like that. And because of that, I got introduced to acupuncture, and I got introduced to herbs, and I got introduced to um, a, a fantastic um, Asian-American individual. He's, he's Asian, but he he moved here and then from China. And he introduced me to all of that. And it changed my life, actually, from a very yeah. positive way. Uh, did you go to university? Well, um, I did go to... Um, an institution which is now a university. At the time, it was a um, what did they call it? I think I think it was a technical college. I don't really I don't really remember exactly what it was, but it wasn't a yet a university. It was a college, and I went there. Um, I was trying to f I was trying to understand about being a human being, and I didn't want to do psychology because I thought I'll get trapped in the system if I do that and I'll be sort of reprogrammed. I won't be able to think for myself. That's what I thought to myself. And psychotherapists I know have actually confirmed that I was not completely wrong. Uh, so I, I, I started a course called Social Studies, which was the, the closest thing I could find. And after a year of that, I decided it was a complete waste of time and dropped out. It was a three-year degree. And then I didn't do any education after that uh, until I was 40. And then I had the opportunity to do a master's degree because the organization I was with did a special deal with a university over here, the University of Surrey. And they had this very pioneering master's degree in um, basically humanistic psychology. And I was able to get into that even though I didn't have a bachelor's degree because by then I'd been working with people in a humanistic mode, really, for quite some time. And I had to write an essay, which was an appalling essay, and uh, I had to have an interview. But they took me in, really, because of my um, my basic aptitude for the modality and uh, the experience that I had of working with people. So I was able to kind of buck the system a bit, because normally over here you can't do a master's without doing a bachelor's first. Mm. So it's okay. a bit of a disjointed academic uh, journey. But, but it works because you've created an environment for other people to really get involved in transforming themselves from that perspective. And I think that's a, a it is an amazing opportunity, you know, within that regard. And I think it was given to you by the universe for a reason. Um, you brought up humanistic psychology. Yeah. Let me try that in one word. Humanistic psychology. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about humanistic psychology and what exactly it is. I'm familiar, I think most of us are familiar with your psychology, but how do you associate humanistic with that? Yeah, so uh, back in the day, originally, uh, after Freud, um, psychoanalysis became popular, and that was basically it. That's, that's what was on offer. And... Um, that, as everybody knows, that entails going back to the year dots and exploring all sorts of experiences and effects 
from your childhood and working your way forward from there. And it also really entails focusing on the problem as a priority, focusing on uh, pathology and distress. And there came a point when, and I forget who it was, the very first person who did this, uh, but they said, mm, this is great for a lot of people, but not for everybody. Um, for a lot of us, what we want to do is focus on the, our strengths, focus on what's working and build from there. Because, we, because we're actually fine, really. We're not broken. We're fine. We have a lot about us. And we prefer to take a more positive approach. And we also want to move away from this idea that the, that the therapist is there to analyze the patient and then tell the patient about themselves and what they ought to be doing. In other words, to fix them in a sort of hierarchical mode. Um, they said, no, what we want is a peer-to-peer -peer experience. We want something where the practitioner and the client, using those words instead of therapist and patient, that those people are peers. They're on a level with each other. And it's a contracted relationship entered into willingly and, and where the, the client has their own authority in the relationship. And actually where the relationship itself, the nature of the relationship, is the prime lever for the work. So it's a completely different type of situation. And, and in humanistic psychology, there are some basic assumptions. One of them is that human beings, if not prevented from doing so, will naturally tend to want to grow and will naturally tend to have the capacity for growth which is a completely different assumption from the one that a lot of people have, which is how do you make people want to change? How do you make people want to learn? It's a completely different attitude. And, and from there, the assumption that the individual has the capability and the right to choose what growth they want and why they want to do it and what result they want. So it's, it's a very particular approach and uh, when I started the Masters, I thought, I've no idea what humanistic psychology is. And I quickly discovered it was actually what I'd been doing for yeah. 16 years. Naturally. Yeah. I just didn't know that's what it was called. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy cool, I actually. It's very cool. <laughs> yeah, crazy cool. What does Robert Dobney, or how does he portray into this? So he was um, in... Um, Fascinating man, very special human being, wonderful man. And in fact, I've got an interview with him on my podcast, which was an interesting experience in itself because he used to be my boss and my teacher. So I had to really gear myself up for that. But um, in the late 70s, I came across an Enlightenment Intensive Weekend workshop, which I went and did. And he was the group leader. He was the founder of Exegesis, which is what it was called. And he'd founded that and developed that, having studied all sorts of things all around the world himself, including Est. And exegesis was reminiscent of Est, had a lot of commonalities with Est. And it also had commonalities with mind dynamics, which came before Est, and elements of silver mind control and headlessness, Douglas Harding's headlessness. So this was a very potent experience. and. Um, I was very impressed with Robert Daubeny. I thought he was the most incredible facilitator, very powerful presence, 
very wise, incredibly bold, um, utterly unpretentious. You know, he, he did not care whether we liked him or not. What he cared was that we would come out of this thing transformed. And uh, I was very impressed with him. Anyway, after that, a few months or a year, let's say, less than a year after that, I left my job and went and worked in a company that he had started, that he and a few other people had started in London, moved up to London. And um, that company actually failed. And so I went and did something else for a while. And then another company was started, which I then joined. And um, that organization was in uh, marketing because we decided what we wanted to do was take some of the principles and values that we'd explored on this exegesis seminar and that we were trying to live out in our lives. We wanted to see if we could take that into the workplace because we didn't see it in the workplace of where any of us were actually working. We thought, you know, these values are not existent here. So can we take this into the workplace and actually uh, have a business which functions and succeeds based on these principles. So that's what we started doing. And um, I quite quickly became a trainer. So I was teaching people voice work and communication skills, and then that led on into management skills. And, you know, it developed over a period of actually 16 years. I was with that organization. And it was Robert, because Robert was friends with a chap called John Heron who's one of the fathers of humanistic psychology. So Robert mm. was steeped in humanistic psychology and his whole approach came from that. And the whole exegesis program was highly humanistic. So he then did a deal with Surrey University, which is where John Heron had, in, had actually created and pioneered this special master's degree and said, well, you guys run this master's for my people. And they went, yeah. He said, will you come to Milton Keynes where we're based? They went, yeah, sure. So we had them running it for us as well as running it for a, an open group that we were running at their own university. So they came and did that in, on our premises for us. So thanks to Robert doing that deal with them, I was then offered a place on, on it, you know, at no charge to me right. as part of my work. And um, I actually left that company six months into the master's but I managed to swing it that I was able to continue and finish it, nevertheless. Uh, so th it was all very, very interwoven with everything. And I also met John Heron during the course of this because Robert brought him in to do some work with us, some workshops with us. And um, he thought, we, he said, I've never met a group that is so open. You know, he said, I, I, he'll say, cool. do this process. We'll go, yeah, sure. And he's thinking, most groups would say, I'm not doing that. Why do you want us to do that? That's weird. We go, hey, we're up for it. We'll do it. Uh, that's so, pretty cool. I know, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, it's, I, have a, I have a bachelor's degree. I have a master's degree. Um, my bachelor's, it was very strict, very, very, you know, it was a business degree. So all my in, instructor professors were all like, I mean, stern, business, math, I mean, you, it, that, that's all I can say was just stern. They, they didn't have a sense of humor. It was just straight. When I get into my master's program, it, I have a master's degree in interdisciplinary studies with a focus on digital media, performance, and art. And it was like a, a unique, innovative, brand new program 
that uh, was implemented at Arizona State University. And I went to the first, it was the first class of the inter- interdisciplinary um, college, which to me was fantastic as well. So I relate to you getting in on the groundworks of something like that. It's an amazing yeah. feeling when you walk out of there with that because it's like, hey, now it's exploded in such a way that I look back and yeah. go, yeah, I was in the first class, man. That was pretty cool. Absolutely and, right. Yeah, it just gives you this new thing. Plus, it allowed me, it, with this master's program, I mean, this program is about you, not me, but it, it kind of relates. It The whole concept that you brought up about the fact that we can learn and evolve my mantra is to inspire, educate, and motivate through this podcast. And I feel that the same way, everything that you spoke about, it just resonated with me to a, to a really high point that we all have this innate want and this need to learn and to grow. But we all were brought up in society to think that we had to do it a very specific linear way. Yes. And if you don't follow that linear pattern, then you really didn't learn correctly theoretically but really there's a really a, a better a better way of learning my interdisciplinary approach to getting this master's degree i got was more of an integration of what really inspired me and motivated me which was yes. digital media performance dance performance art acting i mean all of it drama everything and wow. and, and and it it allowed me the ability to understand so many things from a different perspective by integrating all of those modalities together. And to me, it, it, I went back to college at 51, and it allowed me to really broaden my horizon. And, and I loved learning that way. And you were at the forefront of that, I, I can see from this, from what you tell me, at the forefront of letting people approach this from a more humanistic way instead of more of a uh, yeah. societal linear you know you, you grew up going you grow up you have a house with a white picket fence you have 3.2 kids you've got a dog and a cat you know it, it gives you a, a a broader perspective i think um yeah. you set up on your own to to create an environment that allowed you to help other people within this this whole regard. Um, yeah. Tell me, tell me how you you kind of evolved. I know that you've written some books, and you've got some courses involved with your your podcast. But at what point did you write your first book, for example? Can I ask? I was, that? I was virtually I was virtually forced to write the first one. Forced. I really didn't want to <laughs> we were just talking yeah. about linear and society. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I. I'd hired a marketing coach because marketing's never really been my thing, and uh, I, I thought I really should, you know, try and get to grips with this. And this this guy, he was sort of I don't know twenty or something, and I was forty five, <laughs> but he knew, he was fresh out of college, and and he said you've got to uh, create um, bait. He called it bait. You've got to write something that you will tell people they can have it for free if they give you their contact details. So I went, I don't want to do that. He said, you've got to do it. <laughs> he forced me to do it. And that was in, um, oh my God, that was, I want to say 2006, something like that. It's probably in the book, actually, when it was written. I can't remember exactly. 
And, and that was called, um, why don't the board think for themselves and what to do about it? And I chose that one because that was a question all my clients were asking. You know, everyone was saying, why won't the board think for themselves? I've told them to think for themselves. Why don't they think for themselves? And I was forever saying, telling people to think for themselves isn't necessarily the way to encourage them to think for themselves. Especially if you do it in the tone of voice you've just shown me. Right? So uh, I had so many conversations with people about that. I had so much material that I just put it into a, an, uh, an e-book, a short book, and put it out. And it, it wasn't terrible. You know, people said they thought it was really interesting and quite good. And then after that, I think the next one was the dance one. And I did that one just more for fun, really, because it wasn't related to... I was already teaching Five Rhythms Dance by then, but um, it, it wasn't like a real money earner. It wasn't my core business or anything like that. But hundreds of people, maybe thousands over the years, while I was involved with Five Rhythms, had told me they can't dance. And like 80% of those people had come on the dance floor and they could dance. So I thought, what's that about? So I started asking questions and writing stuff down. And then I created that second book. And by then I'd started to enjoy it. I felt like, actually, I can do this. I'm not going to die a sort of traumatic death of agony from writing because to begin with, I just, I had such a block on writing before I did the first one. You know, I had to actually get help unblocking myself. And my, my, um, my practitioner supervisor, wonderful chap called Dennis Postal, um, is also a writer and a filmmaker. And I said to him, Dennis, I'm completely stuck. I've been told I've got to write something. And he said, well, Catherine, the thing is, if you can talk, you can write. And you can definitely talk. I said, yeah, I know I can talk, Dennis, but it doesn't mean I can write. He said, yes, it does. He said, right, try this, try this, try this. And he kind of helped me unlock it. Uh, I was so resistant. Well, sometimes, it, sometimes it's good when we have somebody push us from behind just a little bit. <laughs> I'm very grateful. I, I thanked the guy <laughs> afterwards. It's, it, is, it is, I have to admit out loud, uh, I run into the same problems myself. My wife keeps going, just do it. You know, you, yeah. we've got technology. You can speak the book, literally. And I'm, I still like, you know, have you written today? No, not yet. I got this to do and that to do and this to do and that to do. So, I, yeah, I understand that. Sometimes we, sometimes we need that little push. Um, can I regress just a little? Uh, yeah. You had a, an amazing year in 1998. Uh, you learn. I know that you you grew up in a holistic, naturopathic environment with your father, which I sincerely appreciate. I wholeheartedly believe in in it and mm -hmm. the mind body soul connection, um, which we'll talk about here in a, in a minute or so. But you got introduced to Reiki, and then it was that about the same time that you the the five rhythms dance. Did that all come in about the same time, or is that something that? Yes, I got introduced to both of those by one of the tutors on the master's degree. Oh, very cool. So <laughs> it just, she said to me, do you like dancing? I said, you know, I do. She said, right, do you want to come to um, an event I'm going to? She said, I said, sure, what is it? She said, it's a seven-day dance camp. 
um, near Totnes in southern England. And Totnes is full of alternative hippie types, you know. And um, seven-day dance camp, what possibly go wrong, you know. So I, I went down and that was my first five rhythms dance experience. With, can, uh, can, can I interrupt you? Can you explain to everybody what a five rhythms dance is? Yes. So Five Rhythms Dance was developed by Gabrielle Roth um, in California in the 1970s, I think it was. And it came out of the fact that she she was a natural dancer. And she somehow ended up working with large groups of people who needed help. So some of these were uh, people with um, dementia or various handicaps or difficulties or they were um, medicated, you know, they were, they were having, having real problems. And um, she was asked just to get them moving. And she was able to get them moving when no one else could. And um, she developed a thing which originally was called the wave. And the wave was where you just go through a cycle where you just start to get into movement just literally moving on the floor, just walking, just moving your feet, just getting yourself moving. And you, you, you move from there into starting to flow with your movement. And you move from there into getting higher energy with your movement, more expressive, uh, more specific. And you move from there into letting go and just letting your body do whatever it wants to do whatever that is, and you reach a kind of a peak or a kind of a climax in that where you are shaking off all sorts of baggage and tension and you reach a beautiful place, a clear place, you know, you come through the storm kind of thing and you come out the other side into a place of celebration and lightness. And from there you naturally, because you're tired, <laughs> you naturally then come back down into much gentler movement and into stillness. And that was called the wave. And she carried on with that and became more and more and more, and more popular. And one day someone said, look, Gabrielle, for God's sake, you're not gonna be here forever. You've got to teach this and bring on other teachers. But you can't just teach them the wave. You've got to break it down so that they know what it is they're trying to do. You know, so that she broke it down into five specific stages which were called flowing staccato chaos lyrical and stillness and those kind of match the cycle i've just described and then she started training teachers and gradually this spread all over the world and now there may be i don't know 600 teachers around the world teaching five rhythms dance it's an amazing opportunity for people to kind of get, you know, feel free and, and break loose. I was taught that myself a number of years ago. We had the discussion before um, we started this show. And, you know, the the um, lady that taught me that, a very good friend, um, unfortunately she's passed, but um, it allowed me from my disability perspective to have a new perspective, basically. Yeah. In, in allowing movement that I didn't think I was able to do again and things like that. So it opens up, uh, really it opens something up for you, both internally, mentally, and physically. 
that uh, kind of frees you a little bit. So thank you for explaining that. I, I wanted everybody to kind of get an understanding of it. And, you know, I'll, I'll find a link to put into the show notes. Everybody can maybe check it out for themselves if they're interested too. My wife, yeah. my, um, my wife does body groove and it's this thing with dance and movement mm-hmm. and things like that. And I think that that person that teaches that uh, does something similar to that because she just says, it doesn't matter. Don't, you don't have to move the way we're moving. You know, we just want you to move and stretch, move how you feel. Um, so I think she does a variation of that and my wife loves it. She, she does it every well, day. There's an umbrella term, which is conscious dance. And I think five rhythms was one of the early conscious dance modalities. And there are many others that have evolved from it now. So uh, soul motion was developed by a five rhythms, somebody who was a five rhythms teacher, right. school of movement medicine. You know, there, there are quite a few different modalities that have evolved in different directions off the base of five rhythms and then other things that have come along alongside it. Well, I, I, <coughs> excuse me, I, I appreciate it from from uh, th- those perspectives, uh, perspectives as well. Um, mm-hmm. In doing my dance studies at the university, um, I focused a lot on creative arts in the healing modalities, and how creative arts can help us to heal. And dance was a primary one of them. Dance, music, you know, drama and art, all uh, to help somebody overcome, to help somebody to, you know, uh, to soothe them. You know, learn things such as how music. And dance helped, you mentioned dementia earlier, dementia patients, and how they resonate with it even when they start forgetting other things. We took care of my wife's father who had uh, Louis body dementia. And even though he didn't recognize people around him, he always recognized music and mm. and always wanted to get up and kind of just sway to the music, um, something yeah. that he resonated with him and it stuck with him in spite of the disease, which I, you know, I found profound. Um, <clears throat> how do you use, um, let's talk about the, the processes and what, I know you teach in classes and things like that. How do you help people understand from, from the humanist perspective, humanist psychologist perspective, how do you integrate people into, into growth and in the tools? What kind of things do you use? So, um, because I've been doing a lot of what I'm doing for quite some time, I now um, work in quite subtle ways very often. So I'm often not um, talking about specific techniques very much. I'm just working from presence, I suppose, more of the time now and less from right now we're going to study this uh, most of the time. So a lot of the group sessions I'm doing um, involve really exploring whatever there is to be explored in the group um, and just bringing to bear whatever needs to be brought to bear almost intuitively as we go along. So it's um, very different from what you might call a kind of training approach. The only exception to that at the moment is the Pelawa workshop. So um, Pelawa is another energy modality that I, did, that I came across in 2018 and I did the teacher training last year. So that is a training course, it's a weekend course, and there's a specific structure for it, specific experiences in a particular sequence. There are attunements and activations 
throughout the weekend, you know, and you follow, you know, the design was, was given to me by the founder. So you said the Palawa has got a, is a, basically a radical shift in consciousness from the notes correct. that I have on you. So that, That's uh, right. uh, help us understand what that, what that does for us. Well, so I think we all know, for example, um, I'm sorry, can you start that again? I'm sorry, I pressed the wrong button. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, it it just puts you in another whole nother puts you in a whole nother world. <laughs> Let me mark yeah, that. Well, <laughs> ever since the seventies, I've forgotten which world I'm in. But <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the seventies, the seventies, <laughs> the seventies. If you can remember them when you weren't yeah. really there, yeah, um, crazy. So, can you yeah, tell us so a little we, bit about? Can you tell us a little bit about Palawa? Okay, so. Um, I think we all know that our frame of mind affects everything. So it affects how we feel, it affects how we perceive things, how we interpret what we're perceiving, how we behave, how we relate. And that's just frame of mind. And mind is only one aspect of consciousness. So consciousness is our higher self, our lower self, our intuitive self, our, ima our imagination, our heart, our spirit, you know, all of those things are all uh, part of our consciousness. And all of those things affect everything in our lives. So when our, when our consciousness goes through a shift, so if I try and think of an example, um, five rhythms dance is an example. So let's say you, you embark on a five rhythms dance experience you come out at the end of the evening or the weekend or the week or whatever it is you've been doing and you are not the same. You've experienced a shift in your consciousness. You, you, something about the way you're experiencing life is different as a result of the experience you've had. Now that's a shift in consciousness. You've probably in that case also had a shift um, in, in your relationship with your body and movement and energy and all of those things. But the, the consciousness shift <clears throat> is the thing which then affects the rest of your life. I'm just going to have sips of water because I just got to... When I get excited, sometimes I get a tickle in my throat. That's um, a good thing. I know, you know. <laughs> so we've all had experienced shifts in consciousness. For example, you have a conversation with a really good friend. At the beginning of the conversation, you're confused. There's some sort of problem you don't understand. And something changes in the conversation. You come out of it different, clearer, more grounded, possibly, more, more of a sense of possibility. That's a shift in consciousness. And we all experience shifts in consciousness on all sorts of levels all the time. It's a natural part of being a human being. But when we have a radical shift in consciousness, a fundamental and radical shift in consciousness, that is incredibly high leverage in terms of the effect in our lives. And actually that's probably um, as clear as I can be without experiencing it for yourself. Because the thing about it is, someone says, when you have a pillow treatment, what happens? Well, you have a shift in consciousness. Well, what's that like? Well, I can tell you what it was like for me. I've no idea what it will be like for you. Because you're, 
your consciousness is unique to you. By definition, I don't know what's happening in your consciousness. I don't know what will happen when there's a shift. And when you experience that shift, you may or may not even understand it. You'll feel it. You may not know how to talk about it. You may or may not want to talk about it. But you will experience the change. It was important. I mean, we all want to reach a different consciousness, I think. Uh, some of yes. us aren't aware that we want to do that, but there are those of us that do and, and yes. seek and desire that change in consciousness. How important is it for us to um, kind of kind of try to attain a different conscious level, a higher conscious level than we are at, at the moment? Well, personally, I think it's the best game in town. To me, it's the most important thing. Partly because as individuals, when our consciousness shifts, we have access to the, the gifts of life much more fully than before. And that includes love, truth, passion, imagination, all of those wonderful things. So when our consciousness shifts, not only is it very good for us individually, it's very good for the people we love as well because our relationships are also enhanced. And if we're running a business, then our business is enhanced. And in fact, the ripple effect of it, to me, is much, much wider than that. And, and I actually believe that the most important thing for us to be doing, um, at, you know, mankind right now, is the evolution of our own consciousness collectively. And I believe that that is already taking place. And each time any individual one of us steps on that path, follows that path, that contributes to that global shift. I agree with that. I think that, you know, I believe that we are all connected. And, and yeah. through the universe, I think that we're all connected. And I believe yeah. that, um, that uh, there needs to be a... Am I getting in trouble for saying this? I think there needs to be a, a shift to a higher consciousness. Um, with a better understanding that we're all connected and that we each, you know, need to to have more compassion and more humanity and more caring and more loving and more understanding um, to to help get us through. There's some trying times going on at the moment and all over the world. And these trying times, I know that sometimes negativity can slip in at the wrong time. And, you know, we both know negativity compounds negativity. Um, yeah. But on the same note, positivity compounds positivity. Yes. So, That's I mean, right. I believe it's, this might be a kind of a bizarre question. You know, I believe in mind, body, and soul connection. When I was um, uh, looking through your, the stuff that I have on you, the stuff that was given to me, um, you have a statement called mind, body, and feeling. Is there a difference between mind, body, and soul and mind, body, and feeling? Yes, um, feeling is on a um, lower level than soul. So I can't remember where I said mind, body and feeling, but um, mind, body and feeling are things that we have direct access to all the time. So physical body, you know, we just have to touch ourselves. We know we've got a physical body. We know we have a mind because we're having thoughts and we know we have feeling because we're having feeling and emotion. So those are immediately available to us at all times. 
soul is at another level than those three things. So when you say mind, body and soul, you're actually bridging two different levels. When you say mind, body and feeling, you're all on the one level, conceptually speaking. That's how I would describe the difference. That That's very distinguished. I mean, it's distinguishable, but it, they all kind of work together, I think. Oh, they completely work together. Yeah. It's just a question of at any point in time, what are you choosing to pay attention to? Yeah. So, for example, I might say, right, today is housekeeping day. So what I'm going to focus on is cutting the grass, doing all the washing up and the laundry, and sweeping the floors. I'm not going to focus on um, developing my skill as a podcaster today, or um, sorting out that knotty problem in a relationship today. That's in a different place. Different way. You know. So sometimes we'll have a day where we're going, no, I am going to concentrate. I'm going to think about mind and body and soul and spirit and passion and heart. I'm going to think about all of that today. Or we might go, no, I'm going to think about mind, body, feeling here on earth. Or we might say, today, all I'm going to do is meditate on truth and spirit and soul. That's all I'm going to do. So brilliant, because basically what you're doing is organizing everything. Yeah, you're choosing where you're attending to something. We're exercising one of our superpowers, which one of our superpowers is we can choose to place our attention wherever we want to. I mean, some people don't feel able to choose to do that, but that's not because they don't have the inherent capacity for it. It just means they haven't practiced it. Too much noise going around. Sometimes too much noise. That's right. And we can also practice uh, removing noise from our lives. And we can practice... I know people who can actually go into a meditative space, very still, quiet meditative space, in a very noisy, chaotic environment. Mm. I can do it sometimes. I prefer just to not have the chaotic environment. But if you have to have that, then these are all sorts of capacities we can develop in ourselves. So do you teach, do you have the tools to help people? And when I say, I may be saying this incorrectly, but do you have the tools to, to help people to organize like that? Could, I mean, yes. my brain is processing it as you just, and it's just my the way I'm thinking of it. You kind of organize it a little bit. So instead of, sometimes we're scattered and we go, oh, I can't, got to go cut the grass or I got to go, like I'm watching my tree out here bushes blowing because the wind's going so hard that I should have trimmed those bushes kind of a thing yes. um, but at the same time I got to go do all this and I'll, I, I got to go get ready for lunch I mean there's so many things you know that go through your head I got to walk the dog you know um, they just kind of start slamming oh I got to do stuff for my courses or I got to do stuff for my book that what you just spoke to me is kind of a, a organizing stuff so worry about just this right now take care of this right now and then when when you're done with that and you're you're good with that then move to this you know yes there's a merit value in doing that there's also a value in letting ourselves be in the chaos as well as you know from the dance right there's a value in just going you know i'm just going to let it all happen and see what sticks just see what sticks and see what is not important 
And there's another state that's incredibly valuable, which is what I call the receptive state, where we just decide to be utterly, we're not in chaos, but we're utterly open to whatever comes towards us and whatever we're going to feel or think about it. And we choose not to do anything about it in that moment. So yeah. that all these different modes of being are incredibly fascinating and valuable, all of them. I find it endlessly fascinating. And of course, because I have, you know, because I have the privilege of working with other people, I'm able to witness other people's uh, various modes of being, yeah. which are different from mine. And, and, and when they click onto a mode that they've never found before for themselves, that for them is a magical thing, and I'm able to witness them doing that, that is such a rush. I mean, that's is, such yeah, a beautiful Yeah, it's got to be amazing. Thing. Yeah, it's got to be amazing. Absolutely amazing. Now, we can do this both per personally and professionally, correct? So it not only affects our personal life, but will affect our professional life. Because I know sometimes we, you know, we get lost, at least here in America, you know, people get lost in the, the, the cliche nine to five, where, you know, or eight to five, whatever it is, where you get up and you go to, you have to get ready for work and you spend an hour on the road and then you work eight hours and you know, you get 30 minutes for lunch and then you drive home in an hour and then you're yeah. like a robot when you walk in the door and you know, you sit down, put all your stuff down, you relax, put your feet up, whatever you're going to do. Then you eat dinner, you watch an hour of TV and then you go back to bed and do it all over again. So how, how do we, how do we try to gain some personal and professional growth in the middle of something like that? How do we break apart from that? How do we bridge that gap? I used to work with um, a lot of corporate execs who lived exactly like that. And it wasn't even eight to five. It was much longer than that. And they were t answering, doing emails on a Sunday, taking calls from the boss at ridiculous hours of the night. I mean, they were, it was crazy. And to begin with, it was almost impossible for them to find any time at all to come and spend with me. And sometimes before we could even meet, we would have to do a piece of work together remotely. In those days, nobody was doing anything on Zoom, so it was all in-person work. But occasionally there was someone who was so stuck in that situation, they couldn't get away. So I had to mentor them to create some cracks in, in the structure for themselves. Big enough cracks. You know, people say the cracks are where the light gets in. I think that's true. So I, I would be talking to them and, and actually um, discussing with them, what is it that your life is full of? And we'd explore that together and say, right, okay, today, what's all the stuff in front of you? I mean, it's difficult to summarize this because it was always different for each person. But for example, it might be, okay, today, what have you got in front of you? I've got five meetings. Okay. What's the purpose of those meetings? Well, I don't really know. Okay, well, can you find out? Okay, I found out. and I've realized this one here actually doesn't really have a purpose. Okay, can you get out of that meeting? Uh, actually, yes, I can. Or no, I can't. I'm running it. Well, can you cancel it if it's pointless? What will people think of me if I cancel it? Well, I don't know. It, it, 
So we would have the conversation and, and they would start to realise that an awful lot of what they were doing was completely irrelevant or could be done a much better way or a meeting could be done with an email. They'd say, oh, that's a meeting where we're all going to go through this document together. I said, okay, great. So has everyone read the document? No, they're going to see it at the meeting. Right. Could you send them the document and ask them to read it on their own time, you know, on the train or whatever they want to do, and then you have a meeting that's that's only half an hour instead of four hours, and you ask them to bring with them their questions about the document. I suppose I could do that. So a, a lot of it, a lot of that initially was just logical uh, questioning. What the hell are you doing? Yeah. You know, and, and it was easy for me to do that partly because I'd done it a lot with people, but also I wasn't in that trap with those people. So I could, I could look at it and I could see that it was mad. It, you know, but, it's interesting. The, the, the two, door, two words that come to my mind when you, when you just expressed that is that you gave this individual the power to be more effective and efficient with both his time and the company's time both. Yeah. By doing that, because it allowed him personally to be able to have a breathing space, but it also was more effective and efficient for the company because, you know, it didn't put pressures on, uh, on all of the employees to have to come up with something as they're going through it. When they may come up with questions afterwards that weren't answered, in this way they could figure it out themselves. So yeah. that's an amazing, I think, an amazing opportunity to be able to, to kind of organize that you know, to kind yeah. of pull it into something more, you know, more efficient. Um, you have a, um, I saw these in my notes, and I'm going to find it. Following our true calling, you know, I, I, I do a talk that I give, a presentation that I give about purpose and finding purpose, because I, at my age, a young age, actually, in my life, at 39 years old, I had to redefine my purpose in life and what I was supposed to do and how I was supposed to do it because I was a police officer. I got injured in the line of duty and was um, forced to retire because of that disability and then develop an autoimmune disease from it, et cetera, et cetera. Which, you know, when I started my life out, I was to be a police officer. That was what I wanted to be. I went to school for it. I, you know, went to police academy as well. And, you know, that was my job. That was my purpose in life. I was a cop. And then I got thrust into having to redefine my purpose. But then when I redefine my purpose, and I'm only emphasizing this, I redefined my purpose. I thought, wow, I never knew this existed. And now um, the path that I'm on now, I realized that I reach, you know, I, I've been heard in 59 countries. I have conversations with people all over the world, like you all over the world. I have conversations that inspire people, educate people, motivate people. I never would have been able to make that connection or that that distinction as a police officer. I did my job as a cop and I and I was I'm proud of my work. I put a lot of bad people in jail. I, I, I helped, you know, I worked domestic violence for four years of nothing but domestic violence. I took people out of situations that they didn't belong into at all. And I put them in a new environment and gave them a chance at new life. I'm proud of that. But in trying to find my re and having to redefine my purpose and not understanding that that I could do that even at a, a different age. I redefined that purpose at fifty 
it took me a number of years in order for that to happen. But once I did that, I went, wow, I, I didn't know that I could do this. But now that I've found a new purpose, it, it gives me as much or more satisfaction than when I was doing what I thought was my purpose in the first place. So do you, yeah. do you think that's the same thing as our true calling? Yeah. I mean, when, when we find our true calling, we, there's a feeling of rightness about it. Yeah. We have a feeling of yes all the way through our mind, body, heart, you know, the whole, all of us. Everything. Ha having said that, actually, that's not completely true. Sometimes the first feeling we have is resistance. So sometimes it's like, no, 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 no. And then we go, why am I saying no so emphatically? Why did I just walk off and do something else? Why can't I leave this alone? Because it's your calling. Oh, God, you know, I'm going to have to yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Been there, done that several times, actually. <laughs> it's a journey, but, you know, once you get into this journey, I think it, uh, I think you'll find that it's an amazing journey in, of reinvention mm. and reaching a higher consciousness. That in itself has allowed me to reach a higher consciousness because it allowed me to understand people from a, a wider perspective, from different societies and cultures, and it allowed me to open my mind to other things and helping people through through their ordeals and their triumphs over tragedy. And through that, it allowed me to grow as well. So I'm grateful for that journey. And and, I, and I'm, I'm glad that you present people with that journey. Can we talk about yeah, that? I, I mean, you, you have classes, you've got your books, you've got classes, you've got a podcast, you have a website. Yes. Tell us about all of it. So it's all on the website, which is a good thing. Um, so uh, the podcast, Truth and Transcendence, I started that in 2021 because I was very unhappy and bored and frustrated with lockdown. And I thought, oh, well, I'll do a podcast. And that's pretty much why it started. And how it's evolved is that um, this idea that when we find and connect with our truth, that's when we really have the opportunity to transcend, which I think is a lot of what you've been talking about today, actually. Um, so that's a series of guest conversations and um, solo episodes on various different ways of coming at that core theme. And uh, taking some of the things we've talked about today and going into a lot of depth on those. So that's been going and I intend to keep that going. It's a weekly podcast. Um, there's the ebook about dance, which I mentioned. That other ebook there, uh, What is Humanistic Coaching and Why Do We Care? I actually wrote that when I stopped doing the corporate work and switched to uh, working with private clients. And I decided to try and um, uh, kind of pour out of me all of the secrets about humanistic coaching that I hadn't revealed before to my clients. I thought, I'll put this all in an ebook, and then if I die tomorrow, it's all there. And that was very satisfying. It was a lot of work to put that together. Um, on the left there, you've got um, an image of lots of people sitting meditating. That's for a new workshop I'm starting next year. It's called Being and Reflecting. And it's all about um, one of our really important superpowers, which is the ability to reflect. And again, some of what we've talked about today feeds into that because 
when we really reflect, we can find all sorts of wisdom between us, within us, and we can get all sorts of lessons from our experiences, and we can get extraordinary motivation and clarity and inspiration from that. So that's a one-day workshop. You have to come to the UK for that. It's going to be absolutely fantastic in January. And uh, Pelowa, I'm running the Pelowa workshops several times a year now. Uh, those are small groups because it's a very, very strong, um, very lively energy Pelowa. So I can only work with groups of up to eight at a time. And that's a weekend workshop. And you come out of that with your Pelowa attunements. You can then give Pelowa treatments if you want to. And um, you can keep following the Pelowa energy as you enhance your life going forward. And I've got other workshops as well. And I do a monthly Saturday morning for local people, conscious dance and, and some meditation together. So, um, and of course the mentoring work, which sometimes people come to me just for that. Sometimes people come to, to me for workshops and then say, look, could we work privately one-to-one? Uh, -one? And then of course we'll work something out of how we want to do that. That's amazing. And where can they find your website? Uh, beingspace.world And it's all one word. And I'll make sure that that link is in the show notes so that uh, you all can just press the button and it'll take you right to it and uh, get everything, uh, Catherine. So I really appreciate Thank that. You. Catherine, this has been an amazing journey. I could talk to you for uh, quite a while longer. <laughs> yeah, you too. Um, but uh, maybe we can have you back on next year after uh, you, you maybe first part of next year or something, you can come back and we can have another discussion because there's so much more that we could uh, express to people and teach people, I think, and help to, again, inspire, motivate, and educate. Um, so thank you for be being on. here. I really appreciate it. This is one more thing before you go. So before we go, do you have any words of wisdom you can share? I'm going to say one thing, which I'm going to say to you, but actually it's to anybody. You know the thing you said about finding your true calling after you left the police force? Um, my suggestion is there's a possibility that everything you were doing up to that point was actually completely in line with your true calling. And you're smiling because you probably already worked that out. But this is, that, this is a piece of wisdom I've discovered, and it's incredibly... Um, encouraging for people. Certainly I've found it encouraging. At those moments of, oh God, why did I not realize this before? I've just wasted my life. Whereas actually, guess what? I haven't wasted it. Everything I've done till now actually was in line with this mm -hmm. and brought me to where I am now. So I want to say that to you and to your listeners. You know, whatever you think you've wasted your life doing, you probably didn't because there was probably a reason for doing that. And there's some learning from that, which if you haven't got it yet, you will get it. Brilliant, brilliant words of wisdom. And yes, you are correct. What I have found is that my journey in law enforcement and the conversations that I had, uh, my experiences that I had, gave me the ability to have better conversations on this podcast. It gave me the empathy, the compassion, the understanding of what people have gone through, not just from listening to it, but from actually seeing it and experiencing it, being part of those people's journeys from a different perspective. And um, it did. It worked. It helped me to become who I am today on this podcast. And uh, I think that it contributed to it. And I value what I learned in that part of my journey. And well, it, I, I'm just at a, I'll say at a higher level. 
Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so again, thank you very much. I really appreciate you being here. And for everybody else out there, please, uh, if you love the episode and, and the other ones that we've got on here, please like and subscribe. Leave a review for me. And uh, I would really appreciate that. And one more thing before you all go, have a great day. Have a great week. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go. Check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform.